my idea of living for the weekend is like go to bed at 10 o'clock. Oh, <laughs> uh, you old lady. <laughs> I am. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Do you need a Linux server for your latest creation? Then check them out. They provide SSDs, 40 gigabit per second network connections, and top-of-the-line hardware to run your server on. It deploys Linux in seconds from the Linode cloud, and you can choose your Linux distro and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe, and they have a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line. So definitely go check them out. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, cloning, scaling, and everything else that you want. So definitely get the most out of your Linux node and check them out at linode.com. And check them out at devchat.tv slash linode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. Corey House. Hello from Kansas City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, one thing I've neglected to mention, I think, on some of these shows is that we have uh, Angular Dev Summit coming up that I'm putting on, and it's free, and you don't have to travel because it's online. So go check it out. We have two special guests this week. We have Dylan... And I always mess your name up, Dylan. I'm really sorry. Dylan Sheeman. You got it right this time. Yeah. That's because um, I put it. That's because yeah. I put a disclaimer on it. I was like, I know I'm gonna mess it up. And I got it right. We also have uh Kits and Kelly. Hello. Now, Dylan, you've been on the show before. Kitson, I don't believe you have, but it's been a while anyway. Do you want to just give us a brief introduction? Let us know who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, I'm Dylan Sheeman. I'm the CEO at SitePen, and I'm the co-founder of the Dojo Toolkit, which is a JavaScript library and framework that's been around since 2004. And I run meetup groups, and I'm very involved in the JavaScript space. And I'm Kitson Kelly. I'm CTO with SitePen, and um, I've been with SitePen for about two years. Been doing technology management for a lot longer than that. Was a committer with the uh, Dojo One Toolkit, um, and am uh, now the uh, project lead for Dojo Two. Awesome. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in and talk about Dojo here. Do you want to just give us sort of the elevator pitch for Dojo, like just what it is, kind of thing? Sure. Um, so I'll start with Dojo 1, which has been around forever, and then we'll sort of quickly move to Dojo 2, which is kind of where we're at now. So Dojo 1 was started back in 2004 as a way to solve the, the challenge of, I want to build something interesting in a browser at a time when that was kind of heretical, um, where why would you possibly want to do that in a browser? And over the past 13 years, it's evolved quite a lot. Um, and many of the things we take for granted now in the JavaScript space, things like promises and web components and um, just a lot of the functional paradigms and features were inspired by Dojo or Dojo was the first or one of the first to do those in a browser. Um, and so a lot of what we did in Dojo 1 has, has had a much bigger impact on sort of the web development community today. And then Dojo 2 is basically our first major from the ground up rewrite from scratch in that time uh, where we've basically said, okay, we're in a world where ES6, ES2015 is sort of the starting point. 
Um, you know, we have the benefit of things like TypeScript and modern APIs and reactivity and other patterns. And so if you were to sort of revisit that all today and, and rethink how you would build something like Dojo, which has historically um, been focused on sort of enterprise applications, um, what would you build and, and how would you build it? And that's basically what, what we've been doing. Nice. So um, how is Dojo different from some of the other frameworks out there? So Dojo 2, um, you know, it, there's sort of a spectrum of frameworks out there, right? So on, on one end, you've got something like React, which is a, a nice small library with a very strong set of community features on top of it to add things, whether that's Redux for sort of an application architecture or, you know, a, a myriad of projects on top of it. And it follows this sort of you know, um, single directional um, paradigm for how you interact with data and how you manage components and whatnot. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you sort of have something like Angular, which is more of an MV star style framework, more of a bi-directional data binding and more of a comprehensive framework. And sort of in the middle, you might have something like Vue, where, you know, it's, it's focused on a set of things that are architectural in their nature. Um, but, you know, isn't trying to do everything, but is trying to do a bit more out of the box than, say, React. Um, Dojo 2 kind of sits in the middle as well, in my opinion, and that we have um, some specific thoughts around how you build UI components and how you um, go about them today with one major distinction in that we've written everything in TypeScript, um, not that you couldn't use it with sort of traditional ES6, but that We've really embraced everything that TypeScript has available to us to make a better out-of-the-box developer experience. I kind of have a question I want to ask. Um, it's a slight divergence from where we am, but I feel like this is a good place to ask it. So, you know, I wasn't really familiar with Dojo. Um, this is something that was, you know, Dojo 1 was before my time. But as I was getting ready for the episode and researching and reading a little bit, um, a lot of people are making the comparison of the jump from AngularJS to Angular uh, and, and making the comparison between like Dojo 1 and Dojo 2. So do you think um, that the Angular team like learned anything from you guys with like how far apart um, you know, the releases have been, or, or did you guys learn anything from like watching the Angular team do this, you know, faster than you guys? I'm just curious if, um, you guys have made that comparison in your minds at all. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I yeah, I mean, we, we did the comparison. I mean, they were, you know, we, uh, it was a bit frustrating as we decided to move to TypeScript um, and we were getting ready to talk about it. And then two days or two weeks later, uh, Angular comes along and, and sort of steals, steals our thunder with, uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, Angular 2 is going to go TypeScript. Oh, no, you know, we, we, we sort of lost that uh, first mover uh, advantage. Um, but what we saw, particularly with uh, Angular um, to and beyond uh, was that they really rapidly moved through their beta phase. And yeah, we, yeah. And and that caused some challenges to, uh, for the community. Um, and we saw that we were actually with SitePen, we were doing some projects in, in Angular too um, and trying to ride that that sort of bucking bronco that was the the, the beta phase, um, <laughs> uh, and and um, uh, we felt really strongly with Dojo two that it's that we weren't going to 
release it and really start talking about it publicly until we were comfortable that we had things that weren't going to shift and we knew what we were likely to shift and what we were likely not to shift. Um, and so that's one of the big challenges that we've had on the reverse, though, is is that we've been talking about Dojo 2 for probably six or seven years, right, Dylan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, the first time I gave a talk was 2011 about okay. Dojo 2. So, yeah. yeah. But, you know, we, <laughs> um, we sort of, um, we were pretty close to having what we thought was done for Dojo 2. And then ES6 became a thing. And it was such a great upheaval that and you've seen this in pretty much every project out there that predates ES6 is it's a rewrite and a rethink on how you go about things. And sorry, go ahead, kids. Yeah. And, and I, I think the, the other thing was, is that, that real transformation. I mean, the, the, I think the other sort of difference between if you look at, at, you know, sort of angular one or versus, you know, or angular JS versus angular is, is that, um, they were pretty much sold on how you develop applications. Um, and that it had a fairly strong opinion of, of how you, you sort of put an application together. And that was kind of the consistency between the two with Dojo one and Dojo two, we had a little little bit of a different challenge too, which is we actually had a lot of the fun, you know, Dojo one had to deal with a lot of the fundamental underpinnings of how you build things, things that, um, angular, uh, sort of built on top of anyways, um, and was this higher order application framework. And we kind of felt with Dojo, Dojo one that we kind of were lacking that sort of, how do you build an app? It was more of a, uh, jQuery library to make it easier to integrate with browsers. Um, but we knew that if people were going to build uh, large scale enterprise applications, which was really the what people were using Dojo 1 for, and we grew organically into that, and we kind of felt that Dojo 2, um, the right thing to do was that that enterprise uh, big web application, uh, you know, use case was a little bit underserved, you know, angular, uh, goes part of the way to dealing with it, react and, and redux, um, go another way uh, of, of trying to deal with that. But people doing serious enterprise, um, corporate, type of web applications still need more help and assistance. And we felt that really focusing Dojo 2 on that um, would do that, which means that we have to provide um, a more feature-rich uh, application framework. Um, and that's kind of the biggest challenge that we've had um, over the, the last year is, is trying to get to a situation where we reap the benefits that you get from TypeScript as far as um, making sure that you build code um, uh, that is right the first time uh, at design time before it even before you find your defects at runtime. Um, but make sure that we really enable that all the way through the user journey. Um, and that, that was probably one of the other things that we kind of felt that Angular could have done a bit more with is is letting that power of typescript actually flow through to to the the end developer experience um where you know where i think it's still a little bit it's still a little bit you don't really harness the full power of TypeScript um, uh, when when using uh, Angular at the moment. Um, you know, there's definitely improvements that that they could do in the long term to to make it a little bit uh, better in the developer end experience. 
And so those were some of the things that we learned um, from uh, sort of watching Angular um, and the challenges that they've had over the last couple of years. One of the things we noticed before they kind of came to the same conclusion is it's a lot easier if all your releases have the same version number. Um, you know, and so this is kind of the joke about Angular 2 jumping to Angular 4 to keep the version numbers consistent. But, you know, we pretty much decided early on that when Dojo 2 ships, every package that's done is going to be 2.0. And then, you know, if something's <laughs> added and it's part of, say, the 2.1 release, it's going to start at version 2.1. It's not going to start at 1.0 or whatever. Um, and the idea will just be that if they have the same version number, you know, they work together. And that sort of keeps it a lot simpler when you've got you know, a release where you've got 20 or 30 different packages that are expected to be used together. Yeah. So guys, I was out here looking at uh, the Dojo docs. And one thing that surprised me was that it, it looks as though Dojo 2 embraces AMD modules. Um, why did you choose to do that rather than the ES module spec? Or do you have the option to use either? It technically, have the option to use either. So we author everything in TypeScript, um, but the uh, the Dojo two distributables. So Dojo one sort of invented AMD, uh, or it was related in the sense that uh, James Burke um, was uh, working on the Dojo project uh, and uh, sort of. Uh, was running into the challenges that we had with the really Dojo 1 module system. Um, so when we came to Dojo 2, um, ES modules uh, weren't fully, the, the, the syntax was fully baked. Um, uh, uh, well, then that's somewhat arguable at times, but, you know, for it was part of the standard at the point um, of uh, ES 2015. Uh, so we had that, but actually how modules were going to be loaded and, you know, you had the option to use system JS if you wanted to load those modules. But um, even then there were sort of still debates and challenges about how that was actually going to work. And it isn't even, you know, until a couple months ago that we actually had uh, ES module loader uh, that was production ready in a browser and it was Safari you know, Chrome and you know Firefox are still playing catch up in, in that space um, and so we kind of felt that we would stick with what we knew worked uh, out of the box today um, before um, we would go anywhere so all of our packages uh, for Dojo 2 at the moment um, are published in UMD. So they, they do load under common JS, so under Node um, uh, or uh, AMD. Um, but uh, ultimately our build tool, um, the the Dojo uh, CLI build tool, uh, uses Webpack and will bundle those up uh, so you don't even need any loader and you don't have to worry about that uh, aspect of it. Okay, thanks. So that helps clarify. I guess I'm still trying to understand then uh, why, or or is it your recommendation then if I'm working in Dojo 2 to be using AMD modules or to be using ES modules? Or It, it sounds like either is an option. I guess what still seems strange to me is I can't think of a benefit to choosing AMD modules. Is there one in Dojo 2? You would you would author things in TypeScript with ES modules. Um, it's just an output format that we know works without a builder. So, you know, when you're running code and loading it in a browser and you want, you want to just be able to run the code that you're writing, 
um, you know, the fastest path is to just export it as UMD because we know that'll work everywhere today. Eventually, that that path will just go away. Um, but you know, to facilitate that, you might still want to pull in some old code that happens to you know not be ES modular um, in its nature. And so, you know, you want to be able to load in modules that are written in Common JS or or um, AMD or you know UMD or whatever. Um, so you know we sort of the upgrade path to Dojo 2 for people is to be able to pull in Dojo 1 code um, and use them in, in you know, some sort of harmonic coexistence. And so you, you sort of need to be able to support that. But most people starting out with a new Dojo 2 project are probably never going to think about AMD at all. They're just probably going to write some TypeScript code using ESM and export it to Webpack modules that they'll use in production. Gotcha. All right. Thanks. So I had another question. Um... Maybe the video I was watching was outdated because you just said that you're using Webpack, but something that I was watching was um, saying that you guys were using Grunt, which I was really curious about the decision for that since that seems kind of outdated at this point. Well, I, um, so for task orchestration um, on our internal packages, we we still use uh, Grunt. Um, I see. But okay. Um, we've for end users, um, we've developed a CLI tool which uses, which is you know built in. Uh, we, it's our own sort of CLI tool node uh, uh, package that we built up to meet the functionality that we need. And in that case, it does the sort of uh, orchestration for you, but it's a little bit less uh, flexible. It's very opinionated in the way that it does it, um, uh, similar to other toolkits out there. And so you would the the default command that comes with it is um, uh, dojo build um, and dojo build will build your application with uh, uh, webpack um, and you don't have to learn grunt you don't have to worry about that but uh, still for our own sort of tooling and rci and how we build our packages we still use grunt um, because we didn't have the CLI to begin with, um, uh, because we had to create it, and the, we still needed something that at least orchestrated the tasks, even though um, we still tend to use uh, Webpack to actually do the, the building and bundling of things if we need to deploy an application. Yeah, so for us, Grunt is more a tool that we use in a pretty lightweight manner to just run tests and um, you know do other things, but it's really not what the end user is typically going to do. It's more of a committer tool than an end user tool. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so I just clicked on the link you uh, provided in uh, Skype here, but when I go to the main page, it says a better way to cr create enterprise web apps. How come you're specifically targeting like enterprise? We feel that um, to do enterprise applications right, you have to consider the needs of those features up front. And if you try to add those features in later, you end up with a bunch of things that sort of feel half baked or half baked or inconsistent. And you know there are plenty of frameworks out there that let you build apps, um, but there are not a lot where they say we're going to sort of tackle the challenges of complexity first, right? And so Dojo early, early on was basically the first toolkit to support internationalization, the first toolkit to support accessibility, um, the first one with a large-scale data grid, um, the first library that included SVG and canvas-based charts. Um, and, and so, you know, sort of the feature set that our users gravitated towards pretty early on was all of these enterprise features because no one else offered them. Um, and so 
in our experience, these are things that are difficult to get right. And that's because they're not fun, right? Like it's not that fun to create another internationalization library. In fact, it's really tedious and, and painful. And um, given the complexity of that, you know, internationalization alone has its own substandard, um, you know, ACMA 402, I think. Um, you know, so basically these things are sort of things you have to do up front or else you'll never make them work the right way. Um, so today, even to me, like internationalization inside of Angular 2 or 4 feels unfinished. It, you know, like the the chain of like going from writing translation bundles and pluralizations to building them into a production application and optimizing whether those bundles are included in the application or loaded separately based on the number of locales you have. And sort of the, the thought process through that is something that if you just sort of think about that as a foundational thing, you end up with something that feels more consistent and natural and, and easy to do. Um, I mean, it also is probably something to do with the fact that most of our users from Dojo One are enterprise developers. You know, they're building applications for banks and insurance companies and working with really large data sets and things like that. And so, you know, sort of focusing somewhere um, where you can make a difference based on your experience, I think is better than trying to build a toolkit or framework that solves every need for everyone. And, and so um, it's not that you couldn't use the great work we're doing on Dojo 2 in that space, but it's more that by focusing on that up front, I think you can solve those problems better. This this kind of leads to something that I wanted to ask about because I, I like answering the what's in it for me question. You know, what you know, why would people use this? And it sounds like it it has a lot of nice things for enterprise development. But at this point, it seems like, you know, a lot of the things, you know, you mentioned inter internationalization and a lot of these other features that we have now in one form or another for React or Angular or, you know, whatever other framework we decide to use, you know, some of them are in various stages. But is that the main selling point then for Dojo is, hey, if I have an app that has this list of needs, uh, Dojo has the most mature solution? Or is there more to the framework and the way that you think about code with Dojo that makes it fit nicely for these sets of problems? I mean, it was probably about 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, where we really sort of had uh, sort of a look at ourselves uh, really strongly because, you know, even though we had had the sort of history of, of being, you know, one of the first uh, toolkits out there, we, we really said, what do we need to continue to exist anymore other than in sort of a maintenance mode in Dojo One for the long term? Um, and we, we really took a critical look at it and said, because there's a lot of, you know, as you pointed out, there's a lot of uh, um, really good software and tools out there um, for the space where there wasn't um, sort of even a, just a few years ago um, and said, do, you know, do we really want to um, put blood, sweat and tears uh, in into something like this? And and that's when we kind of looked at the whole landscape and, and said, well, OK, so you react, you're right. There are, you know, libraries out there that um, are available for internet and all that sort of thing. But I would argue with React and Redux, um, you're going to be spending a huge amount of your time just making decisions about um, should I use this library or that library and does it integrate well and do these components actually talk to uh, my internationalization library? And yes, all of that's very possible. Um, but, uh, you know, React and Redux are, are really sort of low-level uh, libraries um, that make it easier for a mature development team to be able to 
to to develop that. Now, as you know, Dylan was saying in the enterprise, development isn't sexy. It is almost um, uh, one of those necessary evils where you know, enterprises have to be able to develop uh, these sort of mature applications, um, but with developers that are probably um, not the smartest, not the brightest, um, uh, and you know need a bit more guidance and a bit more structure and where especially enterprises like to throw bodies at a problem, right? Um, And one of the things that we've continually seen in our customers uh, with SitePen over the years is is that sort of throwing bodies at a problem uh, doesn't make the development go any faster. And so we really (laughs) wanted... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you just get um, more more bad code faster. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and 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 so that's kind of what we 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 wanted to create a, a, a framework um, which includes some approaches to creating applications that don't require rocket scientists that don't require people to spend a huge amount of time understanding the consequences of their decisions um, and that they can build stuff and that 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 both it's fulfilling from a development exp- uh, you know experience so you know developers feel comfortable with it they, they understand the patterns that are there um but you know one of the main drivers of why we went with uh, typescript too is is that um you know producing code right that the, the first time is is really um, a, a strong use case for TypeScript, but we wanted to pull that through to the full application development um, and and make sure that 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 really stood up. So, yeah, and we you know, we took a we really kind of felt that by the other frameworks, it was an area that was very natural to us. You know, I think what what we see is. Um, a lot of frameworks sort of start out solving a specific set of problems. And then if they become popular, they try to add a bunch of other things on. And it doesn't necessarily feel particularly consistent. So, you know, you have to wait a few years until that sort of shakes out. And what we've tried to do is really say, okay, we we know from the past 10 years the types of problems that our typical users try to solve. How can we solve them in a way that provides the best, you know, developer experience and ergonomics that leads to good performance? And Sometimes they're just really subtle, simple little things like, um, you know, there's many different ways to style a UI component or a widget or whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, there's there's frameworks around that and there's CSS and JS and there's all these different approaches. But what's what's a really good approach? And what we found is by combining sort of CSS modules and uh, a couple of other packages that we could provide type safety around choosing a CSS class name that's specific to a particular component. So you could sort of add back the IntelliSense. So when you're inside a a component file and you're trying to remember which class names are available for that widget, you don't typo it because you just type, you know, the variable name that represents the package of class names, and then you get an autocomplete list and it won't compile if it doesn't recognize the class name that you've suggested. And we've just really looked for lots of little things like that where, yeah, you know, on the surface, there's really honestly not that much difference between the major frameworks out there today in terms of you're not going to fail to, to you know, make it possible to build a good application with sort of any of the big 10 frameworks out there. Um, but which one's going to make you feel better at the end of the day in terms of efficiency and productivity and um, you know feeling like you've got a code base that's easier to maintain and that works consistently. And you know that's something we have the luxury of doing because 
we, we've kind of taken our time to try to get it right rather than trying to rush something out. That makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you go check them out at the show's link, that's hire.com slash JavaScript Jabber, you can get double the hiring bonus that they offer. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at hire.com slash JavaScript Jabber today. So I guess the uh, the other question I have related to this then is, it sounds like you know if I were coming at this 10 years ago, it'd be pretty obvious that I needed something like Dojo and I would just pick it up. But at this point, you know, there's a lot of nuance to choosing a toolkit or a framework. So what is the sweet spot? Where where am I going to say, oh, I have this set of problems or I'm working on this kind of a website? Uh, Dojo is definitely the right answer for me as opposed to, yeah, I could probably do this in Angular or React and I'd be perfectly happy with it. So it's an interesting question that we've been working to answer in a, in a fairly neutral way. So we've actually started a blog series. I just posted the link to it on the SitePen blog. And the, the premise of it is if you choose your JavaScript framework, like you choose your music, you would all be using justinbieber.js, which is kind of a joke I've made at conferences over the years, um, which is that to really know like what framework to use is dependent on hundreds, if not thousands of factors, right? And the number one question we get asked at SitePen and have for the past 10 years is, should I use framework A or framework B? And just the, the names of A and B have changed over time. So right now, that's Angular versus React, but years ago, it was Dojo versus jQuery and, and whatever, right? And the answer is, it's not a simple answer. But um, you know the, the number one reason people have used Dojo over the years, I would say, is because of the data grid component. We have a very strong history of writing data grids that are very powerful and useful for the enterprise. Um, you know, that's that's one reason you might choose something like Dojo. You might decide you want the best possible experience for authoring an application in TypeScript, and we think we're, um, you know, delivering on that message. Um, or, you know, you might want to have a really lightweight way to build UI components in a way that's similar to React, but in, in some ways it's more functional um, because we use a hyperscript-based um, syntax, though you could still use JSX, but we, we sort of prefer a more... Um, you know, functional approach to defining the properties that get added to a particular widget or node. Um, you know, and it's really just though it's, it's the details, it's the nuances, because you could pretty strongly make an argument for why you might use any of the big frameworks out there today. Um, but for us, you know, we've focused on the problems of 
what's a sort of complete yet efficient solution for building complex applications, in particular, the problems that are, you know, occurrent within the enterprise. And I, and I think the, you know, the other thing to which we've continued to try to at least ask ourselves this question as we've been working on it is, is, you know, what is, what is the developer experience going to be like, but also actually realizing that, especially in, in enterprise development, there's, there's sort of this division of labor that goes on where you have specialization, where the people that create your components might even be a separate team from those that take those components and put them into an application. And so we want to promote patterns that um, that uh, allow you to sort of structure that, um, be able to share code, um, use different parts of an application and sort of do that division of labor that, that happens in large development teams. Um, because we, we've seen that happen time and time again. And if, if, you, if you have this sort of situation where you have to have somebody um, that knows the whole application in order to be productive on it, then, then you're never going to be able to, to scale that development. And, and so, we, you know, it's all those little small patterns of where, you know, like how we deal with uh, CSS modules and um, so that you don't accidentally lose the CSS um, that is tied to your uh, component, but at the same time, you're not using sort of uh, low performance inline uh, programmatic uh, uh, CSS, um, which is is kind of the rage these days in certain camps. But, um, you know, inline styles um, are are really sort of uh, uh, developer ergonomics in in benefit of uh, or at the sacrifice of, of the end user application performance, right? I mean, we don't want to sacrifice those things. So, you know, we wanted to embrace a pattern that's very very familiar of importing your CSS, um, but with maintaining the efficiency of having the CSS still be in style sheets at the end of it. Um, um, but you know other you know other little things to to make sure that you can divide out that labor that you can take the design from the design team um, and be able to uh, theme all of your widgets uh, by having a coherent built-in uh, theming system that that makes it easy to to be able to uh, take a, a UI design and be able to you know place that quickly into your application. Another thing we've really embraced is you know in many ways we're particularly tired of the framework wars and the toolkit wars and <laughs> um, you know like modularity was kind of the first step to trying to make things interoperable you know that was the promise of AMD and common JS and it gets you part of the way there right but it what it doesn't do unless you're sort of John David Dalton and you know sort of low dash replacing underscore um, you know unless you had that obsession with compatibility, it was really difficult to sort of know, hey, this block of code works in this very explicit way. And so if I need to replace it, I just need to implement the same interface in part because JavaScript doesn't have interfaces. So TypeScript really gives you that benefit of this is exactly the intent of this code. So if I need to replace it with something else, I just need to write an adapter that implements the same interface and then I, I can replace that. Um, you know, web components are another technology and, you know, they're not perfect in, in their implementation, but having the ability to sort of import and export a web component into another environment gives you the longevity of, so, you know, with Dojo 2, basically you can create a component, 
Um, and then quite easily, you can configure its export as a web component so that you can then pull that same grid that you've created to use inside of Dojo 2, inside of an Angular application or inside of a React application. Um, so th really, the more we can do to sort of break down these sort of barriers between frameworks and make things actually interoperable, the better off we'll be. And historically, we've only gotten good at things that have become standardized. Um, and, you know, so interfaces, I think, are a big potential forward to to help encourage that. Um, and, and, you know, that's something we've taken very seriously in part because if someone now is going to take the risk of using something from Dojo 2, but they've got a bunch of applications they've written inside of Angular or React or Ember or whatever, you know, it's risky, right? Because they're they're diverging from their code base. So if we can say to them, hey, you know, try Dojo out, try to create this grid you want to use with it, and then go export it and use it within the applications that were not written in Dojo, and that'll just work. You know, that's a big selling point over the sort of, and now you're locked into Dojo forever and you can't use anything else and, you know, you're sort of stuck there. I like that idea. I like it a lot. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, that was, I, I think that was, you know, not only the interoperability and, and, and doing that, but also just acknowledging that if if we... I mean, it was one of the challenges that we had with Dojo One, um, because there was nothing or very little at the time. Uh, Dojo One ended up serving a lot of masters, and it became competent at, at at some things, really competent and really thought leader at some things. And then there's things in Dojo One that you know really haven't had any care and attention um, for for ten years, right? Where you know Dojo Two, we really wanted to focus uh, focus on things and really try to but know that we're not going to rule the world right i mean there's really you know the, the there's reasons why angular is successful there's reasons why react is successful there's reasons why ember are successful there's reasons why Vue are successful um and aurelia and you know there are lots of frameworks out there these days um and we weren't gonna we don't really and actually our internal sort of objective is is that if we actually uh, those that are contributing to dojo if what we do is is learn how to build applications better um, and we uh, are able to build uh, applications with uh, dojo 2 um, that we would be proud to leave in other people's hands um, to be able to maintain over the long term then that's a success factor for us um, if if it doesn't get adoption in a wider community, um, we'd actually still feel that our investment that we've made in Dojo 2 was was worth it um, because a, a lot of it, it, we have learned so much from uh, really building a modern uh, framework and we understand what works well in other frameworks and what doesn't work so well in other frameworks, uh, uh, largely based on our experience in, in building Dojo 2. Yeah, I mean, even though we're still in beta, we've built several customer projects where they've been encouraged by Dojo 2 and wanted us to use it. And, um, you know, we also do a number of engagements with people using React and Angular and, and other frameworks. And, um, you know, we've had some projects where we'll use Dojo 2 plus we'll use Redux, or we've had projects where, you know, we'll create a component in Dojo 2 and export it and use it in something else. And, um, but what's been really inspiring is we've just found huge productivity gains over using other things um, for the things that Dojo does well. So I was going to ask one other question because I feel like, I don't know, there's just some stuff to learn from talking about this. Uh, so the video I watched, you guys are talking about uh, the decision that you made, um, the virtual DOM decision 
uh, or the virtual dom that you guys decided to go with and like kind of your thought process that went into that. So uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So we searched, um, you know, this is probably about a year and a half ago or, or closer to two years ago for a virtual dom library that was small, um, efficient, and ideally written in TypeScript uh, because we were writing Dojo 2 in TypeScript. So we've, we ended up settling, or not settling, but just really liking a library called Maquette. Um, it's written by a team in the Netherlands um, for a fairly small company, but it's, you know, at its core, it's just a virtual DOM library. So it's a, a fairly tiny package, um, you know, maybe one-tenth the size of React. Um, I'm picking that number off the top of my head, but it's just, it's pretty tiny. And efficient one thousand lines of code. Yeah, one thousand lines, lines of code. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, Can you guys put a link in the show notes? Of course. We went with the virtual dumb because we, you know, the the other solutions that were out there as far as interacting with the DOM is, is that we've, we've continually found that the, the more you have to deal with the DOM directly, the, the, the more complex your, your interactions become and it becomes a difficult thing. And too often, actually people sort of, when they develop components, they tie them to selves closely to the DOM and that's where issues and errors come, uh, come into that too. And we kind of felt for our own sake, but also, you know, for other developers, uh, uh, sake is, is abstracting yourself from the DOM is probably the best thing, uh, to deal with, um, and to do. Um, and so, you know, we, we were really sold on the idea of a virtual DOM, uh, particularly because we, because one, we knew that we could get it to work efficiently uh, in a in a browser environment, um, but it also enabled uh, sort of future proofing and making it easy uh, to be able to start to accomplish things like server side rendering, which um, we felt that that would probably become a, a strong use case in in the future. Um, and it seems to to be a case that we're still sort of driving out in in uh, the you know current development of of our beta three of of. Dojo 2 is, is we're fleshing out the, the whole server-side rendering story because, you know, both from a, uh, a sort of a search engine uh, ability to, to have your content uh, available to serve up to search engines, um, but also having um, that sort of fast boot sort of concept uh, uh, that you get with the sort of progressive uh, web apps um, and being able to make sure that those perform efficiently as well too. server-side rendering can can be a primary use case for that as well. Um, so, you know, we we really wanted to, 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 to do that. And again, as Dylan was saying, you know, focusing on uh, something that was probably written in TypeScript uh, because we, we knew that it would be there. And, and the, the Macat and the, the, the team uh, that developed it, they, they only care about virtual DOM. They don't want to get into uh, sort of micro framework. They're, they're really focused on doing one thing and doing one thing well. And we had respect for that. And, and it would have been crazy for us to just go write our own virtual DOM library. Um, uh, so we, 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 we selected them and we've been happy with that decision. Um, and uh, they've been uh, really receptive to changes and pull requests and um, uh, I, I, they seem to be a really strong uh, uh, team and we're quite happy working with them. Yeah, I was going to add also, you know, one of the things we really wanted to do in abstracting ourselves away from the DOM is to do some of the things that you can do with React 
like React Native and being able to do you know native vector graphic stuff. And you know, in my mind, event uh, some of this is far off in the future beyond Digit Two, but you know, being able to do things like um, Web VR components and um, you know other sort of virtualization away from the DOM, and and the more you're coupled to the DOM, the more difficult that is to achieve. Um, and you know, we started out with a few other external dependencies in Dojo Two for the runtime, but we've moved away from most of them. But Maquette, we've kind of stuck with. And for example, one of those would be RxJS, and we had a dependency on that, but we were struggling with. Um, you know, RxJS being a fairly large project, and what we really just wanted was the observables piece. So as soon as there was an ESNext proposal around observables, we switched to just shimming that because, you know, we don't want to impose, you know, the, the sort of classic Chris Heilman's famous quote of, you know, NPM star, you know, install star, and you have 500 megabytes of JavaScript, and you don't know what any of it does, sort of approach in every project, right? We want to have a fairly small set of lean dependencies that you know exactly what they do, um, so that you don't end up with just a completely unmaintainable code base where you don't know what's actually going on with the code you're creating. Yeah, so I actually outside of Maquette, um, Every other external dependency that we have for our runtime is uh, standards based. The the only uh, the, basically polyfills or shims. So most of the uh, polyfills uh, for legacy browser support we maintain ourselves um, and are part of uh, a package called Dojo Shim. Uh, but um, increasingly we've uh, like pointer events. Um, we use a, a, a polyfill for that um, and. And um, we're looking at, uh, we really are quite attracted to uh, intersection observers. Uh, so we're going to be including that as a, as a, a polyfill. And, and we found that um, polyfills that um, are standards-based or future, you know, that are fairly mature in the standards process, um, we feel far more comfortable including those and, and building up the the. the the browser support that way um and if it's if it's most likely though if it's something that's in the es standard um or that pipeline will probably uh, create the polyfill uh, ourselves and maintain it um but the things like the w3c and the wicg standards that are emerging sometimes they change too fast that it's easier for us to to use uh, uh the the their um published polyfills versus us um trying to maintain it on ourselves. Yeah, that's actually something that's really changed a lot over the past 10 years is when we started working on Dojo, the standards process was completely broken. Um, you know, you really waited years for standards to emerge. It was sort of a black box community. You could maybe follow along with the mailing list and there was really very little community support. And now most of the standards are done through, you know, GitHub. Um, in the open, you know, anyone can comment and contribute and give feedback. And so the process has improved greatly. So whereas in Dojo 1, we pretty much had to sort of invent our own standards, like things like promises and, um, you know, the AMD format and whatnot. With Dojo 2, we've really focused on leveraging standards where they exist and using those rather than trying to create our own thing. So given the pace then that things are changing and where you think things are going with the JavaScript, web, and front-end community, uh, what's coming up next in Dojo? So um, you mean, like, well, we're still finishing Dojo 2, um, you know, so we're still sort of working on finalizing the experience around how you architect or assemble an application. 
Um, so what we've got done that's really good is sort of how you you, you can still build applications, but um, you know we've got basically a really nice system for building UI components and putting them together in a very reactive manner. Um, but we're still sort of working on the the sort of higher order concepts around architecture. Uh, we're still finishing off some of the more complex components, like the degrid component um, for data grid management and a few other things. But you know we expect to get Dojo two out the door um, sometime in the next few months. You know the idea is before the end of the year. Um, beyond Dojo 2, I think, um, you know, looking at the sort of next set of problems, I mean, one of the things Kit just mentioned is for our DGrid implementation, um, you know, so data grids are interesting in that you're sort of trying to manage the illusion of having, you know, up to millions of rows of records of data loaded when you're actually only rendering basically what you see on the screen and maybe a bit more. Um, and you know, in many ways, the sort of data grid was a precursor to the virtual DOM approach of just rendering what you see. And um, there are some interesting obscure specs. One of them is intersection observers, which is basically a way to determine, you know, if something is actually visible so that you determine if you have to render it or not. And so this is one of those um, specs it just landed in firefox it's there in chrome uh, it's nearly impossible to shim at this point um, from what we can tell at least reliably um, but we think it'll make data grids much more efficient in terms of how you write the code to manage that sort of complexity of say virtual scrolling and infinite grid um, so you know, we're really just looking for things like that that um, make life easier and and lean more towards these standards um, you know we're obviously hoping that the observables um, proposal will get finalized in the next year or two um, as well. And, um, you know, there are just a lot of nice things coming out of that space. I guess the other, the last question I have is uh, testing. So what does the testing story look like with Dojo? Yeah, so um, we've had a, a library for quite a while called Intern. Um, uh, Theintern.io is the domain for that. And uh, we've been in the process of rewriting it as well. So Intern's focus has been on sort of providing a glue architecture to tie all the different types of things you might want to test together. So it leverages a number of things like Selenium and WebDriver for functional testing, and it leverages um, Chai for its assertion library. Um, but it was sort of the first approach to testing in JavaScript that did the following things together, which would be unit testing, functional testing, code coverage analysis using Istanbul, hooks into continuous integration environments, as well as things like accessibility testing, visual regression testing, and performance testing, sort of all in a consistent stack. So in turn four is leveraging small parts of Dojo 2 and being rewritten in TypeScript to sort of take advantage of the modern features of the language. So everything in Dojo 2 has uh, automated tests that use intern um, our goal for everything is to approach 100% code coverage analysis. We're pretty um, strict about things not landing in Dojo without full testing. And then, you know, you can use intern yourself or you could use, you know, whatever, if you want to use Ava or you want to use webdriver.io or Karma or Jasmine or whatever, um, you could do that. Um, and then for our own work, um, Kit created a project, well, for our users as well, which is basically a text ex test extras library for dojo that um you know is similar in ways to something like enzyme in that it provides helper apis for making it easier to test components and patterns that are common in dojo too 
Yeah, and the the command line tool, um, the Dojo test uh, uses in turn as as the sort of default uh, test framework uh, there. So you know when you get a scuffled Dojo two project, um, you'd author your tests in 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 turn, um, uh, which is a pretty uh, simple way of authoring the tests, and that that is integrated into the command line tool. Um, and then you know as Dylan said, the test extras sort of is uh, a set of extra uh, uh, libraries that uh, make it easier to to, to harness the uh, widgets and and be able to do more effective unit tests on them than uh, having to sort of mock and stub a whole bunch of stuff in order to to be able to figure out whether your widget is rendering its DOM appropriately or not. Very cool. All right. Well, um, looks like. We've covered everything we wanted to ask. If people want to follow the project or follow either of you on GitHub or Twitter, or uh, you mentioned the blog a couple of times, what are the best places to go do that? So the new Dojo 2 website is dojo.io. Um, if you want a sort of overview of everything related to Dojo 2 on GitHub, you can go to github.com slash dojo slash meta, M-E-T-A which is sort of a troll of the meta hell we get into with managing multiple um, packages in modern JavaScript. Basically, it's a package about all the other packages. Um, we blog quite a bit on SitePen, so sitepen.com slash blog. And um, we're on um, Gitter. There's a Dojo2 channel on Gitter. And um, on GitHub, I'm Dylan S. On Twitter, I'm Dylan S. Also, SitePen and Dojo under Twitter. Um, Kit, you can give your details. Yeah, I'm Kits and K on both um, uh, GitHub and uh, Twitter. So easy to connect with. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Whenever I have a new idea for an app, one of the first things I do is go find a domain name for it. The company I use and have used for years is Hover.com. Hover.com has a clean and easy to use interface. They don't try to upsell me on a bunch of services I don't want or need, and they provide free who is masking for the domains I register. So if I register a domain that's not directly tied to devchat.tv, people don't need to know that I'm the one that owns it. They also offer domains with all kinds of top level domains like .codes and .computer, and others like .coffee and .pizza. So when you have your next idea strike, go to hover.com slash JavaScript to get it. Once again, that's hover.com slash JavaScript. Corey, do you have some picks for us? I have one pick today, and my pick is a excellent blog post off of Farnham Street, which is one of few non-technology email lists that I subscribe to. And they had a post called Amateur versus Professional. It's a short two-minute read. I'd encourage anybody to read it really thought-provoking about whether you're acting like an amateur or a professional. So that's my one pick. Awesome. Amy, do you have some picks for us? Yep, I do. So there's a conference in Florida in November, and I am not going to be able to attend or speak, but they were super nice people, and they gave me a uh, special code if you are in the area or you want to attend this conference um, for a discount. But it's uh, DevFest Florida, and it's November 11th at the Disney Contemporary Resort. So I'm sure it's going to be, like, super fun, super nice. But the code is just JSJabber, all one word. And I'll put a link to the conference in the show notes. And I'm going to stick with that 
uh, as my only pick for today. Awesome. Uh, I'll jump in with a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is just taking some time off. Um, so if you've noticed that I sound a little bit different today, it's because I'm not plugged into my normal microphone. Um, I am sitting at a table at a friend's house, um, and I'm talking into an Audio-Technica 2100. Um, and I'm going to pick the microphone for one as well. Uh, but the time, just the time off has been really nice. Initially, I post to Facebook to see if somebody had like a quiet place I could go to record my get a job course and just get it finished. But I kind of completely burned out. And so um, it turned into a, hey, can I just borrow your place and crash for a couple of days, you know, and just kind of get away from everything because I, I work from home. And so, you know, just staying home and kind of taking a day off isn't really a day off. Um, and since she's out of town for, she's been, she's been gone for a couple months and she, she will, uh, be gone for a couple more weeks. Um, it's just been really nice to be able to sit down and just, you know, kind of not, I guess just have time to myself and just relax. So I'm going to pick that. And then, yeah, I'm talking on an audio Technica, uh, ATR 2100. Um, it actually has a USB and an XLR, uh, plug on it. So you can hook it into either type of, uh, audio system. So I've just got it plugged into my computer right now and it comes with a stand and everything is just sitting on the desk kind of in front of me. And, and so I've been kind of talking at it and I haven't heard anyone complain about my audio quality. So I'm guessing it's fine. So yeah, I'm going to pick that. And then lastly, there's a video that I watched, uh, earlier today. I was talking to my business coach yesterday, along with a few other people. We kind of do a group coaching slash mastermind group. And, um, she, she mentioned, uh, you know, you need to really figure out your, your why, your purpose for why you do what you do. And she's like, it, it sounds like you have one, but it doesn't sound like you explicitly know what it is. And, you know, I've, I felt like that's something that held me back a little bit just because people ask me why I do what I do, you know, why I do the podcast and stuff. And I kind of give them a generic, mm, I help people. And anyway, so I, I watched this video. It's about 10 minutes long and it's, uh, how to define your life purpose in five minutes. And, uh, anyway, so he just asks, uh, like five questions and it's funny cause he's like, the answer's simple, you know, cause the first one is who are you? He's like, he's like, what's your name? Call out your name. Okay. You got number one answered, right? But anyway, so it just kind of clarified some things for me because, uh, the whole, well, I make podcasts to help programmers, you know, it just doesn't get me excited. But when I start thinking about, you know what, I go, I do this because I really want people to have a fulfilling life, both in their career and their personal life. And so I do the shows to provide you with information so that you could do that. Um, it kind of, A, you know, I got excited and fired up because I know people that I've done, I've been able to do that for through the podcast. And it also got me excited because there are a few things that I feel like I could or should be doing that would, um, align nicely with that personal mission. And I realized that, you know, there, there's more stuff that I could put out there, uh, besides just to show about the technology we all use to do our job. And so, uh, look for some of that coming up over the next little while, but yeah, uh, the, those are my picks. Uh, Dylan, what are your picks? 
Those are great picks. Um, one of the things we use with Dojo 2, because it's kind of challenging to manage across you know, 15 or 20 repos in GitHub, is a tool called ZenHub, which basically adds some tooling on top of GitHub as a browser extension. And basically, it gives you sort of boards and um, you know, swim lane charts and things like that, so you can sort of figure out what to prioritize on a project. And um, it's free for open source projects, so we really like it. Uh, we're involved with a conference in London every November called Halfstack, which is at halfstackconf.com. And basically, it's a single-day front-end-focused JavaScript conference in a pub in London. Um, I mentioned it's in a pub because that's you know it's very casual and laid back, and the talks tend to be really good, and it's very affordable. I think it's like 120 pounds to attend, and I help organize that. And then um, I mentioned it earlier in the talk, but we've been working on this framework series and I think when we're done, it's probably going to be about a 200-page series on how to choose a JavaScript framework. Um, and we've just really enjoyed sort of putting that research out there. And um, when we're done, we'll probably make it into like a, a PDF or an ebook or something just because it's so informative. But as we write it, you can read the blog series um, and hopefully help you choose your next framework better. All right. Kitson, what are your picks? Uh, I've just got one. Uh, which I was kind of reminded of recently, um, uh, and uh, it's my favorite number. Uh, it's called the Dunbar number, uh, and uh, it was proposed by an anthropologist in uh, the 1990s uh, who suggested that we have a physical limitation in our minds of being able to forge about 150 real relationships. Um, and he suggests it harkens back to when we all lived in little tribes and we sort of could um, uh, have these strong relationships with only about 150 people at, a, at any given time. Um, and uh, the rest of the world is 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 the foreign invaders um, that um, uh, sort of come and attack our tribe. And uh, we sort of have a natural resistance to that and sort of seeing uh, every Everything, uh, both, I think it applies to us in the work that we do technically. Um, but, you know, sometimes when you look at the world and you wonder how we can be in a situation where uh, as part of a global community, we have a, we struggle as human beings and sort of uh, treating uh, everybody as an individual. Um, it's one of those things where um, uh, I think uh, kind of understanding um, our challenges and that sometimes we have to uh, sort of overcome our sort of natural inbuilt programming in order to uh, be part of a uh, global community. Um, uh, I think it's one of those things we have to remind ourselves of um, and realize that just because somebody cuts us off in traffic, um, that they are still a human being and uh, are individuals, even though our natural instinct is uh, to uh, run them over and uh, get rid of them because they're attacking our tribe. Yeah, it's very poignant. I think right now with all of the stuff that people are talking about and yeah people just putting on their team jerseys and not really wanting to have a real conversation about stuff all right well thank you both for coming this has been really fun to just kind of dig into this and uh see what's new with dojo 2 and uh yeah hopefully you know when it's uh out of beta you can let us know and we'll give you a quick shout out on the show it was a good history lesson for me <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you all right, we'll catch everyone next week. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.